All right, good morning. Good to uh, be with all of you here. I got in yesterday morning at about 8 a.m. and uh, flew over from Atlanta, Georgia. And um, so I hear that you have barbecue here that actually rivals, you know, southeastern barbecue. So I'm I'm into into trying that. Um, Got off the plane, went to a fantastic breakfast joint um, and had had a Betty, I think is what it was. And... um, yeah, and then uh, rode Harleys all day yesterday long. So I'm as about it, and went out for uh, drinks of Coca-Cola and things like that last night. And uh, so I feel great. I feel great. Like I've, I'm about as happy as I could possibly be. So um, you won't. I won't talk about sin or judgment or anything like that today. We're just gonna. I'm in a good frame of mind. So, uh, but truly, yeah, really nice to be here with you. I've heard uh, about. Well, your country since I was born, but I've heard about an incredible gospel movement. And there's an incredible history uh, here in your country of Australia of just amazing moves of God throughout. And, and it looks like he's up to even more work. And so I'm just humbled and honored to, to be here. Pastor Matt, I'm really, really thankful for him and uh, his hospitality and inviting me to come down and spend some time. And so I'm going to get to get around uh, the country a little bit, going to go to uh, Brisbane, um, I said that right. Uh, we, we went to Bondi Beach yesterday, by the way. I almost said Bondi, um, but you spell it that way. So uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, went there. Uh, where else are we going? Uh, Gold Coast, Adelaide. So going to get around a little bit and get to see so many fantastic children of God and hang out. So I'm, I'm really excited. Uh, like Matt said, yeah, I have a wife, two kids, Jana. Uh, we've been married for 12 years and um, our kids are Tova and Jude. We have a six-year-old girl, four-year-old boy, and uh, our daughter's favorite animal is a skunk. Uh, our, it's true. It's all we hear about. It's all we've ever heard about. Uh, and our son is, he's four years old and he's all boy. And so Ninja Turtles, that's about it. So that's, that's Jude. So, um, yeah, so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about uh, just a brief testimony, kind of how I met Jesus. Then we'll get into some scripture. So, um, yeah. In fact, let's, let's pray before we do anything else today. Um, Father, thank you for what you're doing here um, already today. Thank you for the opportunity to approach you in prayer, in worship, in the word, and um, God, we do ask, regardless of wherever people are coming from this morning, whatever frame of mind we find ourselves in, um, whatever state our soul is in, Jesus, we thank you that you are Lord of all and you're close to us now and your grace and kindness and compassion is for each one of us. I pray that you'll give us just wisdom, sharpness of mind, clarity, and help us, God, receive your word And further conform us into the image of Jesus, uh, servants in your kingdom, that we might see a great movement of the gospel sweep Sydney and throughout Australia. Thank you for allowing us to be called your children. What great grace that is this morning. So we love you, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, our big brother, and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. So... um, I grew up in Woodstock, Georgia, on the north side of Atlanta. I thought it was a ro- uh, like a, a suburb, uh, and then more recently I've come to believe that I actually grew up in like a, a rural farm town, uh, and it really was. It was just a farm town. I grew up in a 
very simple community. Grew up in the church. My mom played piano. My dad served in various ministries here and there throughout uh, my life growing up in the church. I heard a very scary sermon about hell. Uh, we were in a Southern Baptist church. And so I heard a, a scary, it's not, I mean, it's not just Southern Baptists that talk about it, but they did a great job at it. Um, so uh, we grew up in the church, heard a story about hell, and I, honestly, I, I, I got baptized immediately because that seemed like the right thing to do. But, and maybe some of you kind of have a story similar to that where uh, the first round didn't take, or so to speak. I, it, I just did that uh, because, because I was scared. Uh, and then uh, later at the age of 15, right before I turned 16 years old, um, I started going to church regularly uh, to see my girlfriend who was there because uh, I couldn't drive at the time. So my girlfriend went to church there. Um, I didn't know Jesus. I was in a pretty bad place in high school, just drinking, drugs, fighting, uh, police, things like that were a part of life, uh, alternative school. Things like that were, were making up a good bit of 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 life, um, but I, I was going to church and I was hearing my youth pastor. This guy had come in and he had a he was all about the grace of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, and he talked regularly, regularly about Jesus. And I grew up in the church, but for whatever reason, it didn't quite sink in. Uh, and because I'm reformed now, I I know why. But anyway, uh, Jesus saved me at the age of 15. Uh, I was listening to a song. This band uh, was was singing, they, they quoted John 3.16, and right there, uh, 20 years ago, last month, uh, Jesus saved me on the spot. All of a sudden, like, everything I had heard growing up in church made sense that Jesus was alive, that Jesus loved me, that God sent his son into the world right, to, to save me from my sin through faith and belief in him. And I actually believed that message. Uh, and then 90 days, about 90 days later, I knew God was calling me into the ministry uh, as a high school boy, I just didn't know where or what, compa- what capacity that would be. I kind of thought foreign missionary or something to that effect. But, um, I, and so I worked that out over several years. And so some of you are even here today trying to figure out, going, what's God actually calling me to do? And here's some great news. You don't have to have a parting of the heavens moment, Damascus Road moment to know. It, it, sometimes for a lot of us, it takes a long time to really figure that out. And God oftentimes does that through years of discipleship and in community and in the word. And so, um, so it took a while for me to really figure out exactly what God was going to do in and, and through my life. And so um, in high school, um, it, was, it was bad. It was bleak. Then I met Jesus. Um, and it was like one of these overnight transformation moments of, of life. It was just literally, I had one of these moments, these experiences where it just Life changed drastically. And so go from this kid to a, a new creation and to the best of my ability was living for the glory of God in high school. Started leading lots of friends to faith in high school, just right out of the gate. Uh, and then by the end of high school, my, my high school principal, who I had seen for a long time uh, in the office, uh, she actually at graduation went and found my youth pastor and was like, hey, I've, I watched what happened in Alex over the last two years of high school. I want him, I want what he has. And she became a, it was just crazy. Like, like, wow, all right, there is a God. So A, I graduated high school. B, my principal became 
a Christian, both miracles. All right, so there's a little bit of how I got started. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and jump into our topic of the day. We'll get into some church planting stuff uh, soon. So um, if we are going to be uh, here in Acts 29, we are a gospel-centered global church planting network of diverse churches who make disciples, that make disciples, that plant churches, that plant churches. Um, if we're going to do that, and be gospel-centered as leaders, um, then that means that we need to stay anchored both not only in our theology of the gospel, but our ongoing application of the gospel. Uh, and so the gospel, as, as many of us know, it's not just point A that gets you in the door. It's the place that you camp out and you hang out your whole life. That when you're 80 years old or 90 years old and you're on your way into eternity, the gospel's intended to still be the centerpiece of life. That it's not something that you just get in and go, okay, now I'm in, move on to the deep stuff. John 3.16, got it. Now I'm going to go figure out my creation theology, uh, eschatology, start figuring out exactly how the Trinity works like anybody actually did. Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to deep things of God. And those are, those are deep things most certainly, but they're not any more profound than the simple reality, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so. That actually is the deep end of the theological swimming pool. A, who is Jesus? B, what actually is the nature of the love of God? Me, that it's for me personally, not just the world out there or a capital C church, but it's actually for me as an individual right here this morning. This I know, I'm confident of this, I believe this book to be true, the infallible, because the Bible tells me so. We're talking about deep things of God, and that's already summed up in what we learned as three-year-olds and four-year-olds in preschool, in Sunday school classes. That is the deep things of God, and it's the stuff that will carry you from this day to your last. And so, if we want to see a movement of God and do something radical in and through us and in our churches, it will not happen apart from an ongoing abiding in the Holy Spirit, a magnifying of Jesus, a making much of and being saturated in the word of God, or nor neglecting community. Those kinds of things, uh, revival never happens apart from that. Does that make sense? So that's what we, that's what we want to be a part of. And so we're going to talk, this, this first session, we're going to talk uh, briefly about a gospel foundation and a, a gospel identity. So when we say gospel foundation, when you think gospel, when I say where is the gospel in the Bible, oftentimes it's easy to begin with go, well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, New Testament, right there, gospel. Jesus is now on the scene. Which, in some sense, sure, that's a genre in the Bible called Gospels, so yes. Uh, but when we think big picture as Christians, the Gospel actually already begins way back on page 1. In Genesis 1, we've already got the Gospel being demonstrated. And here's what I mean. And, and I know some of us in here are more Reformed and like, actually, uh, we're totally depraved. and uh, Right. That comes on page 3. Genesis 3. So if we're going to be gospel people, we start with not with your anthropology and your doctrine of sin. If you start with total depravity, you're way off. 
The gospel is, begins with a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working together in perfect harmony, perfect community together and bringing creation into being. That the Bible begins not with sin, not with rebellion, not with judgment, not with death, not with separation. The Bible doesn't begin anywhere near that. The Bible begins with a good God, a holy God, a loving God, a communing God, a creating God who created us for himself and for communion with one another. That's where it begins. So when we start talking about a gospel foundation, we don't have to wait to get to Matthew. We can start right with Moses. And then Matthew shows up and it gets really good. It gets really good. So it's important that we begin seeing the gospel message, the good news of God, about God, as God reveals and comes to us throughout Scripture and not just here and there. So, if your foundation is off, then the entire thing you're building is going to be off. And that is, if you start with your anthropology, your understanding of man as Christians, then we end up running around at breakneck speeds, never resting, always responding, and falling for some gimmick, and live in endless frustration. And more than that, if your theology isn't profoundly impacting your relationships as Christians in the church, here's what happens. You chew through relationships, you burn through staff, run over volunteers, and find yourself alone where your only friend is your wife because she has to be. (laughs) So it's actually practical. Um, If you begin with a gospel-centered theology, you'll not only have a foundation that is as secure as God himself, but you'll be filled with the fuel that's actually necessary to carry out the task that he's given us. Your theology must trump your anthropology every time. And so, here's what I want to do to begin with. Take 10 seconds and answer this question. Just think about it. What's a win look like for you as you plant and pastor and lead and serve your church? 10 seconds. What does a win look like? Okay, so realistically, when you think about serving the church, when you think about a church, when you describe the word win, what does a, what does a win look like? Really, as you serve Jesus and his church, we, we have to be care, careful, brothers and sisters, to not fall for the lie that to see our churches grow to whatever number we had in our mind or having the bills paid, that somehow we'll be satisfied in the end. That is, having a vision of a church that reaches 5,000 people might actually be setting the bar too low. And I'm not challenging you to have a church that grows to 10,000 either. Again, what is the win for you 
Think about it this way. God forgive, or rather God forbid us to have a vision for the church that is larger than our desire to know Jesus. Does that make sense? That is, what does it profit a man if he gains a megachurch and loses his friends? What does it profit a man if he gains a platform, but he can't concentrate five minutes in prayer? What does it profit a man if he's more concerned about the growth of the church than his own family? So the statistics are old, but they're true. Over 80% of men that graduate from seminary, and I met some guys from Moore College last night, so here you go. I'm just kidding. But 80% of guys, I like Moore College. They're, they're great. Okay. Um, but 80% of guys that graduate from seminary are out of the ministry within five years. The average pastor prays for less than five minutes per day. There's over a 50% chance that pastors end up in a divorce, and on and on it goes. So it's bleak. So having a grand vision for the church, but no vision, no understanding, no calling to come close to Christ, that's detrimental to our souls. That is, the seminary degrees will not keep you out of bed with someone who isn't your spouse, Book deals and conferences will not take away your addictions. The applause of a crowd will not teach you intimacy with Jesus. You see, we've got to not only have a gospel foundation for the churches we lead, but we have to have a gospel foundation for our very own souls. That is, Satan, your flesh, your critics... They're all against you. The trials of life will come that Jesus promised. They do come. The wind and the waves will beat against your house. And your foundation, though unseen, will be proven one way or another. And so what we desperately need is a gospel foundation in us that will directly impact the churches that we serve. Another question. Why did you get into this thing called the ministry? At whatever capacity you're serving, why did you actually get into it? It's a big question for all of us to answer. Some got into it for selfish reasons, and then my hunch is that the majority of us here today, we got into the ministry because we flat fell in love with Jesus. <laughs> we wanted to see a lot of people come to know him. So no matter what shape your soul is in right now, I want you to know that Jesus loves you and he's invited you to rest at his place and that he's not hiring you to be his employee. He's adopted you to be his child, first and foremost. And it's easy, listen, brothers and sisters, and I'm not downplaying a theology of servanthood by any stretch, but it is easy to get the cart before the horse and start thinking more like, maybe I'm God's employee. Maybe I'm God's pastor, God's servant, God's teacher, God's volunteer. I do these things. I serve God. I show up. And reality is that God is so, so, so concerned with us being 
just absolutely enraptured with the idea that we are his children. For God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We are his children, first and foremost. So, when it comes to this gospel foundation, gospel identity, as both individuals and churches, we want to be focused and centered completely on being gospel-centered because we live in a day in which gimmicks, tricks, marketing, and the allurement of becoming an overnight superstar are all overwhelming temptations. That we want to see our churches become these massive, amazing things, but we could actually miss Jesus in the end. Your church is really only going to be as good as the foundation that it's sitting on. So, if you plant, lead, serve out of any other motive than the gospel and the good news and the love of God, what we end up building are the things that Paul talks about over in 1 Corinthians where he tells us these are the things called wood, hay, and stubble. They get burned up in the end. It's actually possible to look like you have a fruitful ministry and to be completely unfaithful. It's really possible. So your fundamental identity over church planter, pastor, leader, fundraiser, preacher, whatever, your fundamental identity is I'm a child of God. And moreover, not only are you a child of God by grace and through faith, and that will never change, there's also a serious servant heart that does accompany the recipients of salvation. So it's kind of like pedals on a bicycle in the sense of, yes, I'm a child of God, But that child of God does not sit still. That child of God does go and understand that we are sent as missionaries into the world. And so we serve, we love, we lead, not in order to gain our salvation, but because we already possess it. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity, as he cuts to the chase for every one of us. Listen to what he says. Does it not make a great difference whether I am, so to speak, the landlord of my own mind and body or only a tenant responsible to the real landlord? If somebody else made me for his own purposes, then I shall have a lot of duties, which I should not have if I simply belong to myself. Like C.S. Lewis is breaking down just his very own body and his own existence going, is this mine or is this on loan? And if this is on loan, I'm going to have to give it back and everything that I do with my body, I'm going to answer for. So this, this profoundly shapes the way I'm going to live my life. Do I belong to myself or do I belong to another? Paul says this to the Corinthian church as we talk about a gospel foundation. Here you go. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and the twelve, and and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, the son of fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles last, and to one untimely born he appeared also to me. So Paul, Paul writes to a church and starts reminding them 
of the gospel. He gets 15 chapters in, and if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know how messed up this church is, and that it desperately, desperately needs the gospel. There's drunkenness, there's sexual immorality. It's completely out of control. Paul has to write a letter. In fact, if you're just remember, when you think about your letters in the New Testament, some, some would refer to them as occasional documents. That is, Paul or someone plants a church, the church starts going crazy. Some start saying like, oh, Jesus already returned and we're, we're the ones left over. Uh, some of them start reinstating the practices of the Mosaic law. Some of them are Corinthians. Hence the occasion for an apostle to have to write a letter. That's what we're, we're reading this mail of the first century church. And Paul is found reminding Christians of the gospel. So he They already got the gospel, but they needed to be reminded of it again. And so if we're going to be these kinds of people and plant these kinds of churches and see this kind of movement, it is something that Paul says, look, this is of first importance. This is the most important thing. When the apostle says, this is the most important thing, the guy who was knocked off his horse by Jesus Christ says, listen, I've I've got stuff like going to the third heavens and all this kind of stuff. I'm telling you the most important thing is the gospel. You take notes. You're like, that's, yes, got it, gospel. So look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, notice, he says it twice. The gospel, he says, the gospel that I preached. The gospel is a message that is to be preached and proclaimed. Not just in one hour by one guy on a Sunday morning somewhere. The gospel is an ongoing message that is shared by every child of God. Do not buy into the lie that it is for some professional who's been to seminary only and go, that that must be, okay, the gospel is preached on Sunday at 11 a.m. Got it. No. The gospel is something that is believed and embodied and intended to be shared and proclaimed in everyday life. God forbid us to think it's just for the professionals. So Paul says it's a message that we proclaim. And listen, in a day where I I know it is increasingly unpopular to preach, where dialogue, discussion, blogging, and everything else seems more palatable, We've been called to proclaim the gospel. And it's a good news message that has to go forward. And so while we look, and look, while social justice is a wonderful, God-honoring action, social justice is not the gospel. Racial reconciliation which is beautiful. And I, I go to uh, Renovation Church in Atlanta right now, and my closest friend Leon's pastors it, and is doing a marvelous job leading our community toward racial reconciliation uh, in the city of Atlanta that is quite broken. Um, in and of itself, racial reconciliation is not the gospel. Care and mercy ministries are not the gospel. Marriage counseling services are not the gospel. Church planting Church planting is not the gospel. All of these are fruit of the gospel. 
The gospel is the good news that God has come to save, reconcile, and redeem sinners. And all of this stuff is fruit that comes after it. Of course, social justice. Of course, racial reconciliation. Of course, creation care. Of course, church planning. Of course, marriage and family counseling. Of course, we serve our city. You bet. Why? Because of the, because of the gospel. You see? All of those come after. They're the imperatives that follow the indicative, right? So Paul gets laser focused and tells us exactly who and what the gospel is. In fact, the word gospel shows up um, 76 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 60 times. So he kind of is a ball hog on that one, uh, but he is the apostle. And so, yeah. So 60 times, Paul is constantly talking about the good news. So it's a message that is revealed by God and delivered through people actually communicating the message specifically about Jesus. And so your church will constantly need to be reminded of the gospel every single week. And our job is not just to try to cram Jesus into a sermon every once in a while but to actually preach Jesus everywhere. Every week we need to be bringing Christ to the church through the text. And so here's the deal. You don't have to look far to find him. One way that is helpful to think about seeing Jesus in all of Scripture is to read it. Uh, Chris Wright calls it messianically and missionally. So there's a guy named Frank Moore Cross. Uh, he's an uh, an old prof from Harvard from way back. Uh, listen to what he says about reading messianically when you see Jesus in all of Scripture. It says this, Jesus did not propose to present a new system of universal truths. He came to fulfill the past work of God, to confirm the faith of the fathers, to open the meaning of the law and the prophets. The New Testament does not set aside or supplant the Old Testament. It affirms it from its point of view, completes it. Lines of continuity between Moses and Jesus, Isaiah and Jesus, the righteous teacher and Jesus, John the Baptist and Jesus should occasion no surprise. On the contrary, a biblical faith insists on such continuities. The biblical faith is not a system ideas, but a history of God's acts of redemption. So did you see how Frank Moore is talking? He's kind of unpacking Paul's ideas here where he goes, where he keeps talking about in 1 Corinthians 15, as is written in the scriptures, as is written in the scriptures, as is written in the scriptures. That is, when you get to the New Testament, Paul sees Jesus crucified, resurrected from the dead. All of this happens. Paul goes, that's, that's this half of the Bible. Got it. That Jesus doesn't just show up out of nowhere, but he has been prophesied and proclaimed throughout the scriptures and thus fulfills what God was whispering in the ears of the prophets throughout for the first couple thousand years. Does that make sense? So we read it messianically. We also read it missionally. The, listen to this. Uh, Christopher Wright, he wrote an amazing book. Some of you have probably already read it. It's called uh, The Mission of God. This is what he, this is, listen to how he actually even describes what the Bible is. He says that, that, that the text of the Bible, quote, often has its origin in some issue, need, 
controversy or threat that the people of God needed to address in their context of mission. Listen to this. The text itself is a product of mission in action. The text itself is a product of mission in action. God is on mission to reconcile people who are far from him to himself, and the prophets are speaking and taking notes on that activity. So when we see the Bible like that, it tends to change things a little bit, especially if we tend to think about it more as like just another text to study versus something that's given to engage. So it's of first importance is a gospel message. It's more important than the budget, the strategy, your program, your vision. The gospel is of first importance. So as you're planting and as you're serving in your churches, think, comb through everything, everything that you're doing, and think, how does this, what we're doing, what we're saying, how we're going about it from Sunday morning at 11 a.m. to staff meeting on Tuesday afternoon to, to community groups to how we're engaging. Our, how does everything that we're doing, how does this reflect the first importance of the gospel? How does this reflect the first importance of the gospel? That is another way to say it would be Good Friday and Easter is not something that we think about once a year, but rather the fabric of everything that we do. So Paul's crystal clear. I'll be quick here. Paul's crystal clear on what he means by the word gospel. So let's see. I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ, you should probably stop right there, that Christ, the gospel is not about you or me. It's not about your vision or your church. It's not about, it. first and foremost, the gospel is that Christ the gospel is about our Lord Jesus. It's about Jesus. That Christ. Christ died for our sins. Now why is that, any, why is that even relevant to just hear that again today? Well, because it was relevant then and it's still today. Why is it good news that Jesus died for your sins? Because if Jesus didn't die for your sins, you would have. And that's amazing to constantly be reminded of. And in fact, it even, that message right there comforts you in your affliction. That no matter what you're going through, as bleak and as hopeless as that misery is, there's nothing as comforting as knowing that Jesus actually took away the penalty for all my sins. And that the wrath of God is satisfied. And that God does not treat his children as enemies, but rather as children in whom he delights and loves. And that's important that Paul wrote that not only just to an individual, but to an entire church. That the gospel, this message about Jesus dying for your sin, is not just about a vertical relationship with God. Yes, justification. Big idea. Yes, amen. But it has immediate horizontal implications too. Like in the body. How does that affect the churches that we plant with a gospel foundation? Well, for starters, if we believe that Jesus died for our sins, then we don't need to look for reasons and means to penalize one another. 
if the judgment of God fell somewhere else, that ought to profoundly impact how we see one another as a community dominated by good news. It is easy to fall into the I'm a religious cop syndrome and look at brothers and sisters as people who we compete with rather than people who we build up. Does that make sense? That God has not called us to compete with one another, to criticize one another, to put one another down. We're people who are dominated by good news. And so that's why you see over and over again in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, build each other up. Every time a gospel-centered community gets together, people ought to walk away going, my God, these people love each other. This is crazy. No, I don't. That's why we squash gossip. We squash slander. That's why we, get, we don't want to hear it. No, I don't want to hear more bad news about so-and-so. I don't. I have good news about so-and-so. We're that community. We're committed to that Jesus. Right? So that's what God's called us to. So it matters that we understand that Jesus died for our sins. Therefore, when someone does sin in the community, our aim is not to penalize but to restore. And that makes a lot of sense now that we know that sin has been dealt with somewhere else. Now we can now, we get the privilege and the joy of the ongoing application of the gospel to the struggling sheep. Make sense? That's the kind of people God's called us to be. So the good news, that Jesus died for our sins. Here's another line, that he was buried. So if you hang around in church long enough, somebody will do something stupid and sin against you, and you're going to want to kill them. Like, it's real. It's real. You know it's real. You read the book, you're like, yeah, they, they're bad. They're, even Peter. After Pentecost, Paul has to go and sit down with them like, Peter, what are you, right? They had the big, yeah. So people will sin against you in the body of Christ, and some will do it in ways that will really, really ache. And you will be so angry when you've been truly sinned against. You're so angry, you're going to say to yourself, somebody should die for this. Somebody should die for this. Somebody said that to my child? Somebody did that? that that's my spouse. There is, when sin happens in the church, how is this applicable now ecclesiologically with us here? When we understand that somebody should die, Paul says, yeah, somebody did die, and he was buried. He was buried. Somebody actually was buried for that sin against you. And for the one who did the great sin, who goes, I should, I, I should just be, God should just wipe me out. He should, but he insists on other news for you. Somebody else was buried for our sins. And the gospel and you're like, well, this is, this is pretty good news. Well, not, not, not yet. It gets way better. And that Christ was raised. 
Like it's, you're only getting half the good news. If I ask you what's the gospel and you go, Jesus died for me. That's bad news. He's still dead? All right. I, I, that's the greatness, the power of the gospel is in his resurrection. That God validates what Jesus did in our place for our sins as he vindicates him in his resurrection, right? So that's why we're these, that somebody, that Jesus was raised. And just as Jesus was raised, we will be raised. This is the foundation that our churches are called to be built on. This is the stuff that we talk about all the freaking time. And if it gets to a point where you're like, gosh, all we're hearing about is the gospel. That's, that's a great problem. It's just an eternal cul-de-sac in your neighborhood that you just kind of drive around and you never actually exit the neighborhood. It's like, yeah, I just like this cul-de-sac. And I'm just going to, it's great. <laughs> it's good news. We are those that have been given the good news for a world that is dominated by bad news. Jesus has broken in. Jesus has sent the Spirit. And Jesus has sent his word and even us, rickety as we are, into the world with this reconciling message of grace and hope and forgiveness. So that wraps up session one, Gospel Foundation. So over to you, Pastor. All right. Yay.